Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Today we're in Basel in Switzerland to bring you the highlights from the 34th International Symposium on ALS and MND. I'm Alice Griffiths and I'm an NIHR Senior Research Fellow at the University of Sheffield and I'm delighted to be guest hosting this show. Let me start with today's fun fact. Basel is a cultural and pharmaceutical hub at the crossroads of Switzerland, France and Germany, boasting the world's oldest art collection and being the home to the headquarters of pharma giants. All great reasons why it makes a wonderful home for this year's symposium. As ever, in these conference highlight shows, I'm joined by researchers who are going to share their event highlights to provide a snapshot of what's been talked about this week. Let's meet the guests. With me today is Alicia Northall, Heather Marriott, Amber Sewell Green, and Philip McAldrick. Let's start with some quick introductions. Alicia, could you tell us about yourself, please? Hi, I'm Alicia. I'm from the University of Oxford. I joined as a postdoc about six months ago, and I work on neuroimaging in ALS, trying to find new biomarkers. Heather, could you go next? Um, yep, I'm a third year PhD student at King's College London, and I study. Um, I use multiomics in ALS and MND to try and identify um, subgroups of patients which might be beneficial for clinical trial recruitment. Amber, you've come the furthest. Could you introduce yourself, please? Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Amber. I'm from the University of Queensland, all the way from Australia. I'm a first-year PhD student and also a dietitian with a background in neuroscience, and I'm looking to improve nutrition care guidelines with a focus on energy and fats in motor neuron disease. And Philip. Hey, uh, I'm Philip McGoldrick. I'm a research associate at the University of Toronto, funded by ALS Canada and Brain Canada, uh, and I work on nucleosides phosphate transport in ALS. Thank you. So I know this is the first time for all of you joining on the podcast, so thank you for joining us. Um, let's get to some highlights. So I'm sure our listeners already know the format, but what we do is go around the room a couple of times and each person shares one of their favourite talks and posters and then we'll just have a chat about them. But before we get going, I wanted to give you all the chance to talk about any talks you've given this week. Has anyone been presenting? Only a poster. I yeah. can discuss my colleague that did present because I know enough about her work. So I'm happy to share that. Um, my colleague, Jaren Chang, she's been doing really amazing work um, with MRI images of the brain. She started on hypothalamic volume, a little part of the brain that we know is involved with metabolism and appetite. And then they actually showed pictures of non-food items and low-calorie and high-calorie food items in controls and ALS patients in a fed and fasted state. So I guess the first part of her research showed that um, there's a bit of background showing the hypothalamus may shrink in people with motor neuron disease, but they found a curve. So um, the lowest and the highest BMIs, there was a difference, but the middle BMI not so much. So it's, it's not quite so straightforward as we think. Um, but I think the main things that she found was in the uh, fed and fasted state, um, the high calorie foods had a lot more lighting up particularly in the right temporal pole and in the cerebellum for controls, but it didn't seem to be so uh, for MND patients. So it seems to be maybe reduced activation or a bit of a dulling in this. And there, there is some literature kind of showing that these regions of the brain 
are associated with food and reward and maybe social benefits. So uh, just starts to highlight, I guess, areas of the brain we don't think about with appetite that might be affected in people with MND. So I think her research is going to be really exciting and I'm very proud of her. She did a wonderful job. Great. So I guess what would that mean for people we're seeing in clinic? So I guess it would mean targeted approaches that, you know, if people look at appetite differently, maybe they may not be driven by memories. Obviously, I can't make exact to say causation. So let me put a little bit of a marker there. But I see it as, you know, we, we, we might know how to approach and have a more individualized approach, especially myself being a clinician, if we know, you know, there's areas of the brain that may behave a bit differently to compared to healthy populations, we may address, you know, how we approach encouraging people with weight loss, because what would work with other people may not work in M&D populations. So, or just explain how they feel about food, if that's changed. In other cases, we know that there's some taste changes food tastes better or worse, or there's there's decreased appetite, and we may be able to provide a bit of an explanation why, which I think is always nice. Thank you. Philip, you said you did a poster? Yeah, yeah, I had a poster on the first day. Uh, so my work is on C9 or 72 which is the most common cause of ALS and FTD. I work on the loss of function of the protein um, because it's a fairly understudied area. So what I'm interested in is the mechanisms, that loss of function, the effect that it has on cellular mechanisms. So I've been looking at nucleocytoplasmic transport because we know the gain of function toxicities affect nucleocytoplasmic transport. I want to see if they could also be affected by loss of function. So we have some overlap with uh, some of the work that was presented here and we're quite excited about it. Did you get any good conversations at your poster? I was talking for about two hours, um, <laughs> only to about four people. So who, the people who liked it, liked it. Great. Lucia? I didn't have a poster or a talk, so I joined my group around the time of the submission deadline. So it's actually nice to be a fly on the wall for the first time at conference and just be able to soak it all in and ask lots of questions. Mella? Um, yeah, so I presented a poster on um, the genetic analysis of uh, NEFH, a uh, neurofilament heavy chain gene in sporadic ALS. Um, and the reason that we did this is because NEFH is included in a lot of genetic screening panels, but the actual genetic mutations and variants that we find in NEFH haven't been robustly um, associated with ALS risk. So we wanted to try and characterize that further and actually see if variants do modify ALS risk um, by performing a large-scale screening analysis of um, the Project Mine ALS sequencing cohort. And did you have any good conversations? Yeah, there was a couple of people that were interested, although they were wet lab um, people. Now I'm a pure, purely bi pure biophysician. I couldn't really answer their questions that well, but... <laughs> That's the sphere, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. So they, they're doing similar work from a different angle? Yeah, so um, so we confirmed previous reports in the literature which say that variants in a specific domain of NEFH, the tail domain, which affects phosphorylation of the protein that is found in the serum and CSF, um, they actually said that uh, perhaps the mutations are driving the phosphorylation. Um, so they're really interested in tackling it from a different approach, like introducing mutations into in vitro models. Um, so it's quite nice to sort of gain a perspective from the other side. Great. So shall we move on to everybody's highlights? Philip, do you want to go first? Yeah. Uh, my first highlight was a talk by uh, Gary Armstrong from McGill University in Montreal in Canada. And Gary's made, uh, he's used CRISPR to 
modify endogenous zebrafish TDB43. So this is a much more physiological model of disease and it's aged the fish and performed lots of behavioral and uh, imaging assays. And I think it's really important because then this is a physiological model in a, a small animal model, which is much more tractable for other experiments. I think it could be very, very powerful. And what was it you enjoyed about his presentation? Uh, everything. It was, um, I, I think it was really good characterization. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really good characterization and really good. Um, it has a lot, of, would have a lot of power. Um, and a lot of translatability for different studies. Great. Amber, do you want to tell us about your first highlight? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start a little bit broad. And I guess something I was surprised and really enjoyed is the focus on quality of life and the actual lived experience of the disease. I think there was a really huge representation of studies on psychology, studies on quality of life, studies on nutrition, studies on allied health that span through the posters and through the talks. Um, in particular, there were a few on ACT therapy that were really interesting. Uh, there was also one by Aneda Miyoshi, and she talked about just how to manage behavioral changes. Because I guess we see, you know, maybe 15% of people with ALS will have that FTD spectrum, but then still more, around 35%, will actually still pre present with those behavioral changes of things like apathy. And if we can understand that as clinicians and then actually relay that to the carers that know your partner or your child or whoever it may be is not depressed, they're just struggling with motivation, that can actually really change the, the course of their of how they behave and how they interact. So I think that was a really, presented some really powerful guides for carers and clinicians and for clinicians to share with carers. Yeah. 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 Is that the Mind Toolkit? Mind Toolkit, yeah. So I'm really excited and I think in what I've looked at and, and seen as a clinician is there really is that lack of standardization. So at seeing those toolkits come out and actually being looking forward to a future where there are online tools for clinicians and carers is something I think is really exciting. Great. So you've been kind of looking at things from a how will this be helpful yeah. as a clinician yeah, and a we, researcher? We run research, like I, I'm a clinician myself, but we also run research clinics. So we see a lot of the human side of it four days a week. So really you get that hands-on patient and care experience. So I'm always kind of keeping that in the back of my mind as, yeah, how to better standardize it, how to improve quality of care. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Lucia. So I think most of my highlights are probably from the neuroimaging sessions, but I think I'd like to start with something that was um, not exactly in my, in my area. So um, the talk by Hallie Cropper, I hope I said the name right, um, from the University of Illinois, um, which was focusing on the... Uh, well, a couple of things, but how um, injury can perhaps predispose certain people to develop MND. And of course, not everyone who has injuries develops MND, but um, she had a population of patients um, who had been involved in exercise, mostly high-level exercise, I think. Hopefully, I didn't get that wrong. Um, and she looked at where they'd had injuries in the past um, and changes in the, the spinal cord, the vertebrae, and where the onset site of their disease was. So if they had had... Um, problem with a specific part of the left leg um, and had the ALS onset site was in the same place um, which is something I've always been interested in so it was really nice to look at the natural history of those patients um, and she also had some great post-mortem data um, and looking at where the disease may spread up um, from the spinal cord up to the medulla and um, that was my highlight. That sounds really interesting. So is she looking at specific types of sport? 
Or um, just... So I'm not sure exactly, but she had um, a sample of, I think, 18 patients and eight with post-mortem. I'm not sure if they were exclusively patients who had a history of high-level exercise or it just happened to be the case that a lot of them were involved in sports. Um, but I think it's one of those things that's so complicated when we think of lifestyle factors like diet and exercise. Um, but they're understudied and I think that a lot of um, patients and their caregivers are just interested in um, risk of exercise um, and things like that. Yeah, and I think especially with there being kind of some high-profile people in the media who have got sports backgrounds, that kind of draws attention to that kind of work, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's lots of people who are doing those challenges while they've still got uh, motor function left. Uh, really inspiring, I think, to the whole community. Uh, Heather? Um, yep, so one of my favourite highlights was from the genetics and genomics session in day one. Um, and I think one of my favourite talks was that was by Yan Wang at UMC Utrecht. Um, and she developed a computational tool called SpyPath, um, which can identify intronic splicite hotspots in the whole genome. Um, so she applied it to paired RNA and DNA sequencing data um, of uh, people with ALS. And she actually found that, um, she actually found mutations, splicite mutations in KIF5A, which have been previously reported. Um, but she also found some promising mutations in other genes as well. Um, so I think she might extend it genome-wide and then hopefully um, she might identify some new re uh, genes, which you can't really get in the um, genome because it's, it's in the non-coding genome. Um, it's not in the coding genome um, that we usually get with like whole exome sequencing. Um, so for those of us not in genetic, yes, where, where does that go next? Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so as in, in terms of if a gene has been identified, then what happens? So what do you think she's going to do next to take this forward? Ah, okay. Um, so I think what she was planning to do, and I don't know if I'm wrong on this, but she's planning to extend, um, extend it genome-wide. So she was initially looking in KIF5A, because they already have those splicite mutations, just to see if the tool is actually capable of picking it up. Um, but she's going to do it genome-wide. Um, and then from there, if she finds anything, then I think they might be functionally validating it and then screening in people, uh, large-scale populations, to then see if it can be a candidate gene. Anybody else got a highlight that they'd like to share? Yeah, there was a really um, wonderful talk at... Uh, in the kind of cell biology on the in the afternoon of the first day by Alex Cormack, and that was talking about lipid pathways or fat pathways, and particularly in C9 variants, which that was particularly interesting again because I think there's that dementia ALS crossover, and they were talking about um, the basically uh, four genes that are linked to lower levels of unsaturated fatty acids and. Your unsaturated fatty acids, if we think of saturated, is usually something that's solid at room temperature. Unsaturated, the ones that's liquid. Our unsaturated is like our fish or our, uh, in the monos, um, things like olive oils, but more of those kind of plant and fish-derived oils, and they're a huge part of the brain. And I think what I found exciting is it started with Drosophila or your fly, then it went to mouse models, but then it was also found in iPSC lines, which are lines when we take um, cells and take them right back to the start and then can reprogram them as motor neurons, some really cool science. And 
showed that, yeah, the, the, there was a reduction in these and it, it was linked to poorer prognosis. And then in post-mortem samples, so when people kindly donate brains, for example, or spinal cords um, for research, we found the same, like these lower levels. And they provided some, or he talked about some treatment options where they provided ASOs uh, where you can treat this and kind of reverse it. And it, it actually helped and rescued the cells. So I'm interested in that from my own perspective. I'm, I had a poster here as well, but I'm looking at, you know, if, if providing people just enough energy can prevent weight loss, because anyone that contrary to pop popular belief, any weight loss, even if someone's a bigger body size is considered with shorter life expectancy. But it seems to be that maybe it's a bit more complicated than just calories and the type of energy, whether it's coming from fat seems to be a really big part of the literature. And I think there's a lot of compounding evidence that there's a role in these. So it helps a little bit more a step towards maybe a bit more um, precise nutrition care guidelines. And also something patients can do if we've got some guidelines that are a bit clearer, then it kind of takes the power back in hand. So I was excited about that. So is that something we don't know much about? Yeah. Late? Sorry, I was going to say, I thought it was really cool as yeah, well. Yeah, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Because uh, one of the ways to treat uh, the problem with the uh, polyunsaturated fats was they used a plant enzyme that doesn't exist in humans. Oh. So they expressed that in their iPS cells and it rescued the phenotype. So it's really cool biology that, you know, taking a gene from another organism that humans don't have and then using it for human health is how, a really... How did they... Like, um, how do they select that plant enzyme? If, you know, how do they select that plant enzyme as the... Uh, I think they, they, they'd looked at... Um, they didn't say specifically. I would have guessed that they looked at, you know this method of um, the pathways involved in polyunsaturated fat production aren't common in humans, but they know it is common in plants and another organism that can't, maybe C. elegans. Um, a lot of plants, you know, a lot of our oils are plant-derived, so they've got their own biological processes and then, yeah, testing that in an organism that's quite simple to kind of then verify it. But really yeah, nice. it was some really interesting science and kind of built its way back to humans, which was really interesting because... A lot of these, you go, oh, but is it clinically relevant? And then it was nice that they kind of built back to that. Yeah. And then they, then uh, one of the phenotypes that they rescued, which is ALS relevant, was uh, vulnerability to glutamate, which can cause excitotoxicity. So then this plant enzyme was beneficial in an ALS context, not just in the lipid. It's, it's really, really nice. Exactly. And we've seen that theme of cortical hyperexcitability and that perhaps that's potentially maybe one of the starting points that the region of the brain that might have that hyper excitability or just you know the neurons are over firing then might relate to the map of whatever body part it is and that might be the area of the body that first gets symptoms and spreads so yeah really exciting so it feels like that's got potentially quite exciting trajectory forward i, I think, think so, so. Yeah. yeah i think it's got a lot of promise i think the cortical hyper excitability thing you know, it's a, it's a major feature of ALS, but it comes up in a lot of different fields because it, for neuroimaging, it's really important for us and can be measured using TMS. Um, but my colleague, Michael Trubshaw, presented his work today using um, magnetoencephalography. It's a different kind of imaging technique, um, like EEG, but with better spatial resolution. Um, and he was showing that this, um, replicating a lot of early results with in ALS, um, where beta power is decreased, which is the oscillation related to motor function, um, but also showing data from uh, uh, asymptomatic carriers of C9 and SOD1 mutations and showing that cortical excitability is increased in those patients um, who are symptom-free entirely. Yeah. Um, so I think it is one of the earliest 
markers of the disease. Um, that something is going on. Yeah, yeah, and it's linked to all the different fields. You know, it's not just neuroimaging. It seems to be kind of cropping up. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Heather, another highlight for you? Um, I saw a really nice poster by one of the patient fellows, um, Rick Kelms, and what he was doing is he creates artwork um, online um, using several different uh, tools. And what he's trying to do is get lay summaries that the University of Sheffield have done with readable research. Um, and then he just transforms it into a picture. And it was amazing to see all of his, all of the pictures. And he was walking through them all. It, it, was, it, it was so good, honestly. Um, Can you give us an example of what one looked like? Can you oh. remember any of them? There was so many, but there was, um, so there was one, um, this was based on his own experience with MND. Um, yeah, it was a beautiful garden, loads of butterflies, loads of plants, because he was like, oh, the journey, you never know where it's going to take you. The, the, the journey's beautiful. My wife's walking it, walking it through with me. Um, and he says, you just get a different perspective on life. And that that's one. But then a scientific one also, um, he was reading something about, um, perivascular fibroblasts um, and how they can um, be altered in ALS. So what he did was he actually drew, um, he was drawing the whole parasite, blood-brain barrier. He got a lovely little picture, um, but he didn't look scientific at all. It was, it was, yeah, it was so good, yeah. And I guess great seeing posters by people living with MND as well. Yeah. And I thought it was really nice as well seeing the patient fellows with their yeah. um, beautiful scarves. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought it was like a really like, nice, non-stigmatising way of saying, this is Wait, how I'm identifying yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Really... Um, did anyone else see a poster by someone living with MND or that had a contribution for someone with MND? I saw a few, but I don't think I could give any concrete examples. Yeah. <laughs> so many posters. Yeah. It is, it gets a little, yeah, yeah. a lot yeah, that your yeah. brain is so many posters. I didn't um, see any posters by the patient advocate, but I spoke to a few of them, um, and they're very, very impressive people. Um, yeah. Their scientific knowledge was way beyond what I thought it was going to be. Uh, it was very enlightening to talk to them. It was really enjoyable. Also, they're so motivated. I mean, the conference is exhausting, even for the scientists where it you know, you want to discuss all those tiny details with someone you meet at a poster session. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, you know, you're exhausted throughout because it's a lot of work and the patients are so motivated. It's um, it's inspiring. I saw an interesting post that was presenting clinic data and it was really interesting because this woman was from the States and she was saying, would this work in the UK? And it was like satisfaction cards that were given out at the ALS clinic. And um, she said it helps people know which ALS clinic to go to. She was like, would that happen in the UK? I was like, well, you could do your satisfaction survey, but it's still the one you go into. (laughs) (laughs) But they'd done little um, like flyers for people to take away with them. So you could uh, look at all the data online, which I never thought of doing before. But she was like, you just scan the QR code, gave me a flyer and off we went. Does 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 the scan bring you to a survey? So, no, so it takes you to a website which highlight the, their survey findings for all the different uh, clinics around okay. the US. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not good on it. So it's like Yelp for clinics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But beautifully presented. Yeah. And they had, she was like, oh, we've got a graphic design team who helped us do this. And I thought, very, very impressive. 
<laughs> um, so we're going to get kicked out the building in a few minutes. So has anyone got one final highlight? I did like, um, I can't name the specific talk because it's just come to mind. I didn't prepare, but um, I think it was on the first day or the second day. There was a focus on a clinical care session. Um, and there was a talk about non-specific caregivers. So not people who are trained or employed to be caregivers, but people in the home or colleagues, friends. They said it could be anyone, someone who regularly drives you to the hospital. Um, but that was really amazing because they focused for a long time on the um, you know, psychological stress and the implications of being a caregiver and how difficult that is. But also they finished with such a positive note about the benefits. So they asked all those non-specific caregivers to summarize their experiences. Um, and it was really nice to see that, especially if it was someone in your family, you felt closer to them, you valued the time more with them. And it was nice um, to end on a positive note about M&D. Uh, could I also add uh, in the final session, uh, the prize won by Neil Schneider and his team, which was uh, incredible for developing a FUS uh, anti-sensolionucleotide yeah. treatment. Uh, and uh, we met one of the patients and they've been... Uh, not declined in three years from a very aggressive form of ALS and uh, it was very emotional. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. It was amazing. And uh, just as a bit of background, if viewers don't know what that is, FUS is a very aggressive form that typically is juvenile or, or found in children and death is usually within about a year, sadly. And he developed a treatment that he, he started on one patient and today we actually saw someone who'd actually improved and is still living three years later which is phenomenal and something quite groundbreaking and I think gives a lot of hope and I think this whole conference gives a lot of hope because there are a lot of positive steps and and treatments that before we went oh there's no treatments yeah, I don't think I can confidently say now that there's no treatments in my talk anymore so yeah 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 you're so right that feels like a positive place to be yeah great so that's about all the time we've got to talk about highlights but before we go let's just have one final question. So what advice would you give to anyone who's heading to an event like this and maybe presenting for the first time? Let's see, do you want to go first? Oh, presenting for the first time. Um, I would say it's a bit different if it's talk or if it's a poster, but to talk slowly and try to keep it simple, one message at a time. And it's very easy for us to give three-point answers sometimes. We're like, point one or point two, and I think it's better to keep things short and be excited about your research as soon as you get talking you'll just enjoy it so great and then do it um i would say don't assume that everybody that comes to your poster it works in that specific subfield um i got a lot of i got some patient fellows coming to mine and also wet lab scientists and at first i did assume that they were <laughs> bioinformaticians and then i realized and then yeah it's just about adapting the language so keep, like keeping the message consistent, but adapting the way you explain it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. Philip, I think? Uh, I'd say two things. Uh, this is my first international meeting for three or four years. And I flew from Toronto and arrived the day before the conference. So I was jet lagged the first day and I was miserable, even though I was, I was trying my best. So I think if you have time, if you're doing a long journey, uh, if you have time to not go straight into the conference, it's good. Uh, but I, the presentation is important. Walking around and meeting people is just as important and enjoyable. And I get a lot more work, like collaborations and opinions from people that way as well. So I guess if you're not confident in yeah. doing that, how uh, how is good to approach people? Just have to try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Partner briefly. Yeah, yeah. I I usually try and not to interrupt people. I'll I'll, I'll 
see someone who wants to talk to you and wait till they're walking past the poster by themselves uh, or get them in a, in a lunch break, introduce myself and say, I usually compliment them. Say, I liked, your, I liked your most recent paper on whichever topic. Everyone likes to hear that. So then, then, then they're receptive and yeah. Great. So poster sessions, quite a good time to catch people. I uh, definitely second the travel thing. We, um, we arrived the day there was a snowstorm in Munich and I ended up in Paris for a night unexpectedly, Ooh. which is not bad in hindsight. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely give yourself a couple of days before if it's an event internationally. Um, in terms of posters, I'd say, think of it kind of like you're delivering your story. You don't need to say every single thing on your poster, but I'd also say it's a cross between a story and a conversation. Ask if someone knows something and if they want to know more about it and have those pauses and have that interaction to say, oh, what do you think about this? And then give your thoughts like, oh, wow, well, actually, this is what I think from this, but that's a really fascinating point. So keep it conversational as well and ask and, you know, don't just talk at, talk with is probably my recommendation. Thank you. And I think one highlight for all of us has been the lunch here. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm, it's a bit sad. I'm not going to be fed coffee and cake every few hours. <laughs> yeah, and the frequency of the food <laughs> yeah. here has been fab, hasn't it? Great. So that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our brilliant guest, Alicia Northhall, Heather Marriott, Amber Saul Green and Philip McCaldrick. You'll find more information on the event and all the sessions at symposium.mndassociation.org. And of course, you'll find bios on all of our guests and a transcript of the podcast on the Dementia Researcher website. But for now, I'm Alice Griffiths, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Bye. 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 <laughs> the Dementia Bye. Researcher podcast was brought to you by University <laughs> College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. Dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk